Let's give attention to God's word. This is, we've been going through Hebrews 11. We're looking at these seven by faith statements from Hebrews 11, 23 to 31. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because he saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch him. By faith the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. This is God's word. Let me pray for us. Father, now we ask that you would increase our faith and that our faith would be rooted in you. We ask that your spirit would work through the word drawing us closer to you, in love with you, and less of this world. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. We love the story of Moses and the Exodus and crossing the Red Sea on dry ground. The Egyptian army comes after them and the waters come crashing in on them and the Egyptian army is decimated by the crashing waters of the Red Sea. But without Moses, you don't have the Exodus. Without Moses' parents, you don't have a Moses. Moses' parents, this passage starts out here, they went against the most powerful man in the world at that time, the Pharaoh himself. Exodus 1 ends in 122, tells us that the Pharaoh commanded all the people Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. That was the edict. Sons drowned, daughters live. And to go against the Pharaoh's edict was certainly punishable by death. And Moses' parents knew the risk involved, but they feared God more than the king. And seeing their beautiful male son, Moses, they made a decision. They made a decision to hide him rather than to drown him. Their faith was not a foolish faith. It wasn't a presumptuous faith. It didn't stroll down the road carrying Moses in their arms. Faith makes use of means. It uses our brains. And this faith went against Pharaoh's decree. And to go against, they went against Pharaoh's decree because Pharaoh's decree was against God's law. And so for Moses' parents to love their child, they had to shrewdly and carefully think through how to wisely plan to save Moses' life. They hid him for three months. And then, as we're told in Exodus 2, when she could hide him no longer, and it's interesting, the Hebrew account, it's all she pronouns, but the Septuagint has both. But as you pick up here, this is mainly the mother's faith. 
says, when she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and dabbed it with pitamen and pitch. And she put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. And interesting, the word to choose for basket is the, is the Greek word for the ark, just like Noah's ark. Here comes the ark, and it's going to be Moses is in this ark. And she puts Moses in it, and she placed it among the reeds by the river bank, very strategic. And his sister, Miriam, stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, while her young women walked beside the river, she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman and she took it. And when she opened it, she saw the child and behold, the baby was crying. And she took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrew children. And then his sister said, Miriam says to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. And so she went and called the child's mother. Hey, mom, your plan worked just like we planned. And Pharaoh's daughter said, take this child away and nurse him for me, and I'll give you your wages. I will pay you to nurse the child. <laughs> so the woman took the child and nursed him, and now she's getting, the mother is being paid to nurse her very child. God blessed their disobedience to the human king because the human king had forfeited his right for obedience by commanding people to sin against God and killing their children, particularly the sons. Godless times call for godly actions that stand up in courage against the world. The Ten Boom family was a Dutch family who lived in the Netherlands during World War II. The Germans invaded their country and they started taking the Jews to the concentration camps. And the Jews began to scramble to try to hide. And the Ten Booms began to secretly hide Jews in their house. And if you remember, I know some of you younger people may not be as familiar with the story, but in Corey Ten Boom's bedroom, they made a fake wall and they made it look very, very old, and they painted it, and it had a little trap door, and, and behind the door was two and a half feet wide and eight feet long, and that's all it was, but it was enough to hide a, several Jews, and they set up an alarm bell system in this, you know, several-story house, and the bell would ring in the basement. If the Gestapo came and knocked on a the door, they'd ring the bell, and it would warn everybody upstairs to, to run to the hiding place. Well, food in those days was very scarce because of the war, and there were food rations. But Corey knew the man who was the civil servant, who was in charge of the local ration card, food uh, at the car, um, ration, and there was a card that you would get, a coupon book, and she knew the guy. And so she, she biked over to his house one evening, and she asked for ration cards. And he explained there's just no way. There's no way I can give you ration cards because there's like 12 different ways that they can check it. And the only way that I can give you ration cards is we have to be robbed. And Corey was pretty bold. And so he asked her, how many ration cards do you need? And she went to say five and her mouth said a hundred. She was bold. She asked for a hundred ration cards to save a hundred Jews. And when she came back a week later, his face was beaten up badly. And he had the ration cards in an envelope. 
and he had his friends beat him up because it was the only way that they could convince the Gestapo that they truly had been robbed. And he slipped her the cards. And those food cards were the golden tickets to save 100 lives because the way they worked was when you got to the last coupon, you showed the last coupon and they would give you a new book. And once you were in, you were in like Flynn. I mean, it worked. And so Corey's boldness, but this man who many don't remember was willing to take a beating to save some lives. When the Temboom family finally got caught by the Gestapo, Corey's father was an elderly man, and the Gestapo was not going to load him into the truck to take him away to the prison camp. And so he asked Casper Temboom, listen up, old man, if I send you home, will you behave yourself? And Casper's reply is, if I go home, I'll open my door to anyone who knocks. To which the, the Gestapo said, type this fool's papers. And Casper said, it is an honor to go to prison for God's people, and I pity you, to the Gestapo. And Casper died not too long after that in a prison in German concentration camp. You see, Charles Haddon Spurgeon once said, the world is upside down, and therefore the first are last, and the last are first, and see how the servile sons of Satan lorded in the earth, what a high horse they ride, how they lift up their horn on high, and Haman's in the court while Mordecai sits in the gate, and David wanders on the mountains while Saul reigns in state, and Elijah's complaining in the cave while Jezebel is boasting in the palace. Yet who would wish to take the places of the proud rebels? And who, on the other hand, might not envy the despised saints? When the wheel turns and those who are lowest rise and the highest sink, patience then, believer, eternity will right the wrongs of time. Moses could be an Egyptian prince or he could be a prince of Abraham. He had to make a choice. But he knew God's covenant blessings were upon Abraham and God's covenant curses were upon the Egyptians. And so Moses chose wisely. And that's what God's people do by faith. 1 John 5 says, everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. Faith is the victory that overcomes the world. Moses chose mistreatment with the people of God over enjoying the fleeting pleasures of sin. We talked about this last week, but it bears repeating because what Moses did was so bold, and not only was it an act of faith, but it was also an act of great courage. One of the greatest vices as Christians is that we're cowards. We don't want to cause waves. We don't want to rock the boat. We don't want to stand out in the crowd. We don't want to speak the truth in love. And so often we're silent. We have to open our mouths to share our faith. Can I tell you about Jesus? You know, I would love to tell you about Jesus. And if you would ever give me the opportunity, I'll take you out to lunch and I'll pay. Do we have the boldness to say that to our coworker, to love him enough to say, I would really love to tell you about Christ and I will take you out to lunch to share with you. And plant the seed. What are some questions that we can ask people to get into conversation about Jesus? Here's a question for you. If God were here right now and you could ask him one thing, what would you like to ask him? You want to ask people that? Well, you'll get into a conversation. Ask him. Ask him. 
Ask him how you can pray for them. Tell him you're praying for them. And then be there when there's a need. But we are cowards too often. And C.S. Lewis writes about this in his screw tape letters where the senior demon is writing to the inferior demon and he's giving him tips on how to trip up the Christians and he says, to make a deep wound in his charity, you should therefore first defeat his courage. A chastity or honesty or mercy which yields the danger will be chaste or honest or merciful only on conditions. Pilate was merciful till it became risky. And once it became risky, he washed his hands, didn't he? See, Pilate was ultimately a coward to the crowd, and he had Christ crucified while he declared him innocent. Lewis closes out the section, day 29, with this. For remember, the act of cowardice is all that matters. The emotion of fear in itself, no sin, and though we enjoy it, does us no good. Your affectionate uncle screw tape. Where's God calling you to step up to the plate? But being afraid of being hit by the pitch. And your family, your neighborhood, the body of Christ in the workplace. Moses' courageous faith had him put his will and his mind before his feelings. If he were just by feelings, he would have loved the fleeting pleasures of sin. But he chose this short-term future pain over the pleasure of the feelings. He chose suffering with the people of God over the fleeting pleasures of sin. And you know this verse would have really hit home to the original hearing audience because they were struggling. They were tired of being mistreated with the people of God and identifying. They had gone publicly before and they'd gone off to, while they're being taken to prison, they'd gone public and then they had seen their places being destroyed and they were tired of going public with their faith and they just wanted to shrink back in their faith and they were getting hardened in their sin by their lack of fellowship and some were choosing not to identify and not even gather anymore with the believers they just thought they would pack it in on Sunday and some might be in that boat this morning we get tired of fighting sin Tired of fighting sins in ourselves. Tired of the sins in our family. We get tired of teaching our kids and then we get tired of teaching the kids at the church and tired of working in the nursery and tired of helping people in the church move and tired of saying goodbye to friends and tired of investing in new relationships. Tired of being in a small group. Tired of serving as a deacon or elder. Tired of ushering. Tired of counting money. Tired of men's fellowship and circle of friends and hospitality lunches and vacation Bible schools and sports camps. And I think I'll just turn on the AC and enjoy some Netflix and some cable TV and just chill out. But that would not be a courageous choice, would it? It would be an easy choice and an easy road. But Jesus has called us to a narrow road. If we're going to share in his glory, we have to share in his sufferings and join him with God's people. It's really messy, but it's eternally rewarding. Moses looked to the reward. And the reward is well done, good and faithful servant. To choose less is to choose the fleeting pleasures, the proskyros pleasures, the two-time pleasures, meaning for a season, temporary, not lasting, transitory. It means tied to time. The point is to live for something that's timeless like the ten booms did. Do not love the world or anything in the world, John says. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boastings of what he has and does, it comes not from the Father, 
but from the world. And the world and its desires pass away. But the man who does the will of God lives forever. And so Moses considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. Matthew Henry put it like this. He says, in one, one scale, he put the worst of religion, the reproaches of, of Christ. And in the other scale, he put the best of the world, the treasures of Egypt. And in his judgment, directed by faith, the worst of religion weighed down the best of the world. It won. By faith, knew, by faith, Moses knew that the future rewards pay greater dividends. They have lasting rewards and pleasures. So he chose, in this life, hardship over hoarding. He chose a life of extreme difficulty over a life of extreme ease. He chose the reproach of Christ over what we would call the American dream. It was if Moses said, by faith, let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also, the body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. John Piper says, love is costly. It always involves some kind of self-denial and it often demands suffering, but Christian hedonism ins insists that the gain outweighs the pain. It affirms that there are rare, wonderful species of joy that flourish only in the rainy atmosphere of suffering. The soul would have no rainbow if the eyes had no tears. The soul would have no rainbow if the eye had no tears. So why did Moses do this? He was looking to the reward. We all live for rewards. Everybody. If you're here today, you're living for a reward. The reward of a paycheck, the reward of satisfaction from accomplishments, the rewards of vacation, the rewards of recognition from significant others, the rewards of entering into the inner ring and being promoted, the reward of being able to give my child a good education through financial means, the reward of meeting significant people, the rewards of helping others and seeing them happy. For Moses, the reward was well done, good and faithful servant. So what about us this morning? What are, what's the reward that we're living for? And are we willing to take risks? And what are we willing to give up to follow Jesus? To quote again from the Screwtape Letters, where the senior demon is writing to his novice nephew Wormwood and explaining to him the tr tricks of the trade of how to seduce these Christians to fall into sin, he says this, the enemy, being God, has guarded him from you from the first great wave of temptations, but if only he can be kept alive, you have time itself for your ally. The long, dull, monotonous years of middle-aged prosperity or middle-aged adversity are excellent campaigning weather. You see, it is hard for these creatures to persevere. Isn't that what Hebrews is about? You have need to persevere. The routine of adversity, the gradual decay of youthful loves and youthful hopes, the quiet despair hardly felt as pain of ever overcoming the chronic temptations with which we have again and again defeated them, the drabness which we create in their lives, and inarticulate resentment with which we teach them to respond to it. All this provides admirable opportunities of wearing out a soul by attrition. If, on the other hand, the middle years prove prosperous, our position is even stronger. Prosperity knits a man to the world. He feels that he's finding his place in it while really it is finding its place in him. His increasing reputation, his widening circle of acquaintances, his sense of importance, the growing pressure of absorbing and agreeable work built up in him, a sense of being really at home on earth is just what we want. 
That's why we must often wish long life to our patients. 70 years is not a day too much for the difficult task of unraveling their souls from heaven and building up a firm attachment to the earth. Now Moses would have been in category two. He would have been a prosperity knitting a man to the world. He had, the son of Pharaoh's daughter had it all, rank, respect, education, wealth, prestige, privilege, power, position, pleasure. He was on top of the world. There was a slight problem though. Underneath Moses' feet were the lowly Israelites who were elevating him and they were terribly treated, murdered and oppressed and in a bondage of slavery to the Egyptians. And the wealthy Egyptian leadership in that day despised manual labor and saw men who labored as akin to the animals and that to arrive in life was to be able to study and to get them underneath of you to do all of your dirty work. So Moses had to make a decision. Who am I going to identify with? It's real nice up here, but I'm standing on the, on the necks of my fellow Israelites to do this. And Acts 7.23 tells us that when Moses was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. He'd reached a midlife crisis. And this midlife crisis for Moses was, should I stay or should I go? And if I stay, there'll be trouble. And if I go, there'll be double. And you know the song. <laughs> but Moses refused to, be, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. And now the daughter of Pharaoh had preserved his life when he was an in infant, as he was spared from a certain death. And she'd gone further than that. She'd adopted him, educated him as her own son. Yet he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. That had to hurt her deeply. As Moses chose to reject, in some sense, his own mother and all that she stood for and represented. And Jesus spoke of this in the Gospels, where he challenged anyone who would follow him, they must love him more than father, mother, or siblings. God will have no rivals. And certainly Jesus' claim on our life is a claim to his deity. Think about this. If Jesus isn't God, how can he say this? Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. If Jesus isn't God, how can he say that? But if he's God, then he has every right to make that claim on our life. And since Egypt was the most powerful nation in the world at the time, Moses was giving up what everybody in the world coveted to have. He was a big fool by the standards of the world. When the disciples says, said, we have forsaken all and followed thee, Jesus, they're all, A.W. Pink says, was a, neck, was a net and fishing smack. But Moses abandoned a principality when the disciples gave up pales in comparison to what Moses gave up to identify with the people of God. Moses renounced his inheritance he recognized that his wealth was coming from oppression. And he chose to be on the bottom rather than being on the, on the top. He chose a difficult neighborhood over the easy one. He chose to be oppressed rather than being the oppressor. He renounced privilege and power and prestige of living com comfortably with the Egyptian aristocrats. And what Moses was giving up was security, safety, and ease and enjoyment in exchange for hardship, difficulty, suffering, rejection, and pain. I don't know if some of you guys saw the video link that was sent out a while ago that was circulating. But in the early 50s, Billy Graham had to make a decision because segregation was huge. And everybody just wanted him to do the rallies with all the white people. And this was long before Martin Luther King, a few years before he had a dream. 
And he made a decision. And he actually had Martin Luther King on his platform at one point. But he made a decision when he went to New York. And he said he wasn't going to do it anymore. He could not in his conscience do that because it violated the very principles of the gospel to have whites and blacks separated. And so for him to get blacks to come, he, he went and started preaching on the streets, went to Harlem, different places. And let me tell you, there were a lot of white people that did not like what he did. But Billy Graham made a stand for what was right. You see, what Moses did the same thing, he refused. That word is really the word denied in, in almost every other place of scripture. Peter, you know, says he denied Jesus, same word. We're to deny ourselves, same word. What Moses denied himself here, he denied himself big time. It was an incredible act of self-denial of great magnitude because of his position in life. It would have been one thing if Moses was a slave like the rest of Israel and he chose to endure that for the sake of future reward and, and benefit. That'd be logical, because his portion in life wasn't that great after all. You know, it's kind of like if you're an untouchable in India, coming to Christ is, that's much easier than if you're Bill Gates or you're Mark Zuckerman or Zuckerberg and you have all the resources, all the influence, all the lifestyle options in life to ever dream about. And Moses had even more. He was a prince of Egypt. He was heir to the throne. He had everything at his disposal, yet he chucked it all and he considered it rubbish. For Moses, he knew he couldn't be a Joseph or a Daniel. These were men who had great influence in the midst of being, in, of, of being with pagan rulers. But for Moses, the issue of oppression was too great and his own pe people were being murdered and oppressed. So Moses lived out Proverbs 5, 15, 16. Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble with it. Moses knew to be a friend of the world was to be an enemy of God and God's people. J.C. Ryle put it like this in his incredible sermon called Moses' Example. And I would just encourage you, read that sermon. He goes to all these faith-told statements, and I'll give you a couple. But he, it's just a wonderful sermon. He says, faith told him, told, told Moses, that there was a reward in heaven for the believer, far richer than the treasures of Egypt, durable riches, riches where, where rust could not corrupt, nor thieves break through and steal. The crown there would be incorruptible. The weight of glory would be exceeding and eternal, and faith bade him look away to an unseen heaven if his eyes were dazzled with Egyptian gold. Faith told Moses that affliction and sufferings are not real evils. They are the school of God in which he trains the children of grace for glory, the medicines which are needful to purify our corrupt hearts, the furnace which would burn away our dross, the knife which must cut the ties which bind us to the world. Faith told Moses that the despised Israelites were the chosen people of God. He believed them belonged the adoption and the covenant, the promises and the glory, that from them the seed of the woman was one day to be born the one who would bruise the serpent's head, and that special blessing of God was upon them, and that they were lovely and beautiful in his eyes, and it was better to be a doorkeeper among the people of God than to reign in the palaces of wickedness. Don't, do not marvel, he says, that Moses refused greatness, riches, and pleasure. He looked far forward. He saw with an eye of faith kingdoms crumbling into dust, riches making to themselves wings and fleeing away, and pleasures leading on to death and judgment, and Christ alone and his little flock enduring forever. Wonder not that he chose affliction, a, a despised people, and a reproach. He, be he beheld things below the surface. He saw with the eye of faith 
affliction lasting but for a moment, reproach rolled away and ending in everlasting honor, and the despised people of God reigning as kings with Christ in glory. Why is this so helpful to us? Well, first of all, it reminds us of Christ. Moses is a reflection of the true and better. When you read this, isn't that what Christ did? Jesus himself chose to be mistreated with the people of God. He identified with us. And the writer of Hebrews says that Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers. He gave up heaven and experienced our hell. He left a world of bliss and blessing and entered a world of sin and misery. He left a world that only knew praises and came to a world that knew him not. He left a world that loved him and came to a world that hated him. He left a world that worshipped him and came to a world that killed him. He humbled himself by becoming a human being forever. He took the sin of humanity on his, on his shoulders and was bruised for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. And the chastisement and the punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. There was once a boy fishing with his dad. And the boy simply wasn't catching any fish. And his dad asked him to reel in his line and said, let's take a look. And when he pulled in his line, there wasn't a worm on the hook. And the father said to the son, where's the worm? And the boy said, but if I put a, a worm on the hook, the worm's going to die. And the father said, unless you put the worm on the hook and let it die, you're not going to catch any fish. And Jesus said, come follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. And Jesus said, if you would come after me, you must deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. The Apostle Paul put it like this, may I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. You see, we need this perspective. J.C. Ryle ended his sermon like this. He said, are you making any sacrifices? Does your religion cost you anything? I put it to your conscience in all affection and tenderness. Are you like Moses, preferring God to the world or not? Are you willing to give up anything which keeps you back from God? Or are you clinging to the Egypt of this world and saying to yourself, I must have it, I must have it, I cannot tear myself away. Is there any cross in your Christianity? Are there any sharp corners in your religion? Anything that ever jars and comes in collision with the earthly mindedness around you or is all smooth and rounded off and comfortably fitted into custom and fashion? Do you know anything of the afflictions of the gospel? Is your faith and practice ever a subject of scorn and reproach? Are you thought a fool by anyone because of your soul? Have you left Pharaoh's daughter and heartily joined the people of God? Are you venturing all on Christ? Search and see. Search and see. Let's pray. Lord, do search our souls. Test us, know our anxious thoughts. See the offensive ways in us and lead us in the way everlasting. Come, Lord Jesus, forgive our transgressions, our sins, there are many, or where we've loved this world more than we've loved you and chosen to be cowards rather than people of faith. And we pray that, Lord, your spirit would prod and prick in us Lord, to step out in courage, to identify with the people of God, to not be ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation.
to everyone who believes. And may we not be ashamed of that gospel. We ask for your help in Jesus' name. Amen.